Hello and welcome to a new episode of Song Stripper. This week we are back in the room. Yep, in the first episode since lockdown, we are recording again from Phil's studio in sunny northwest London. And this week we've got a fantastic songwriter, producer, manager, and artist himself, Martin Brammer. It's a long, rambling conversation with lots of very funny anecdotes, so please settle back, enjoy, and put your feet up. Unless, of course, you're driving, walking, or running. Song Stripper. On this episode, Tim and I welcome an outstanding English writer who has lifted us. He's even seen the closest thing to heaven. Many artists have recorded his songs, including James Morrison, James Bay, John Newman, Roland Gift and Beverly Knight. He's also had songs covered by artists as truly terrific as Tina Turner and as varied as the Lighthouse family and Foxes. His career started as a singer with the blue-eyed soul band, The Gang Gang. Right now, Song Stripper welcomes the man who's always the calmest presence in the edgiest of rooms. It's Martin Brammer. Hello. 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 Thank you for joining us. So I've heard you say um, over the years that I've known you that when you wrote Lifted, the other writers went for dinner whilst you spent hours experimenting with the modulation between the verse and the chorus. The result was a massive hit. Tell us the story. Well... The other guys went. For, no, they went for lunch. It was a, it was a lunch time. We we I don't know what day it was. Second, third day. We we'd uh, got together, and uh, it had just become apparent that we'd written two parts, which oh. didn't go back together. Didn't really go together. We had the verse and we had the chorus. We started off with the chorus, but. Um, you mean you had two songs on no, the No, we didn't have two songs, no. I mean, the gestation part of the, the song to, came about where I turned up. I mean, I can go back a little bit further if you, if, if, yeah. if you want. Yeah, go. I, yeah. I just signed, the day I signed a new publishing deal uh, to lots of hits music with my good friend Tim Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who was a friend of my good friend from the northeast, Barry, the man who almost bought Newcastle United. Yeah. Barry, uh, Barry's Barry, Barry comes in there. Um, and the day I signed was the day of the Polygram Island Music Publishing uh, Christmas party. And uh, I was still living in the northeast at the time. I came, so we came down, signed the, signed the deal on the afternoon, went to the party on the evening. And the party, I was introduced to Colin Barlow. Of course. Um, who I sort of vaguely knew. And I knew Colin quite liked me from the past kind of thing. That You know, the odd times he'd been interested in. And Colin Barlow is, uh, is an a, a, A&R, A&R. A&R guy at Polydor at the at time. At the time, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Colin uh, said, oh, I've got this, I've got this, this, band up in the northeast i wonder if you'd like to write with them right and uh so this was the christmas the very first song i wrote in this new deal was actually lifted not a bad bad start yeah particularly when i'd left behind quite a hefty debt uh at my previous of course did you then the moment that lifted was a hit 
presumably you went back into the publishers and said, can I have another big advance, please? Uh, well, it never really worked like that. Because, no. uh, I mean, it actually, from a sort of... It's an interesting thing from a writer's point of view, being always recouped right from, you know, right from that first hit. Yeah. Mm. Was, was actually not a great thing. Because there was no jeopardy on the side, on the, on yeah. the side, and and I'd signed the, the, uh, I signed the publishing deal on the basis of me being an artist. So I actually had an artist deal, well, right, which involved a really onerous minimum commitment that, as a writer, was you know if I wasn't going to make yeah. that solo album. There's a little, little bit of detail here. When when a songwriter signs to a publisher, they usually advance. Uh, given a, uh, some money ahead of the, what they actually earn, um, and that's called an advance. Yeah. And then you spend the next three or five years, um, the publisher re will recoup that from the song's royalties and also um, there's something called product commitment where the publisher demands that the writer um, get so many cuts on records before they get their next check. Before they get the next check, and indeed worse than that, before they move into the next segment of their contract. So there would normally be an extension. So a period would last a year, but then there'd be a, an additional period of two years, I think it was in my case, where mm -hmm. if you didn't fulfill the minimum commitment, yeah, mm -hmm. then so every period basically lasted three years rather than, mm -hmm. rather than one, which was not... Not fantastic. Anyway, let's stick with the happy side of it. The first <laughs> yeah. thing I wrote in that deal was a massive hit. And you and you wrote it in the northeast. Or and so did. yeah, so uh, you know, the day before or whatever, we I went to do the session. Uh, I was you know thinking, well, must have an idea for that for that thing tomorrow. Um, uh, obviously, where do most songwriters get their ideas? Other people. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking through my. Uh, you know, record collection and thinking, okay, what can I take some sort of inspiration from? And uh, I saw a track on a Lattimore album called, I think it's called Let's Get Lifted or something like that. I thought, oh, that's a, that's a different, that's a word that, you know, we're always looking for new ways of saying, want to take you higher or yeah, whatever, you know, yeah. some, something like that. Yeah. And I thought, lifted. That's not being used, has it? That's that's quite a that's quite an under. The irony here, perhaps, that, that you lifted, lifted. I mean, to use the kind of criminal talk oh, of right, right, yeah. lifting yeah. something, meaning you you yeah. took it from somebody yeah. else's possession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, his was. You uh, were inspired. I was inspired. By it. By it. I yeah. just took a word. You know. I mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean. You know, you can't even copyright a, a title, so yeah. uh, oh, it was perfectly all right. And literally. I, I, you know, I turned up at the studio with the guys and I said, well, I've got, I've got an idea, you know, I don't know if you like it, it's, mm. it's, it's lifted and it go, you know, and it goes, we could be lifted, lifted from the shadows. So I sort of basically sang wow. the, the, that chorus bit. Did you? And, they, and they, and they liked that. Yeah. So that was our starting point for, yeah. to come back to the thing. So we had that as our centerpiece. Yes. And then off we went writing some sort of verse and uh, Paul Tucker from the Lighthouse family who's 
you know, very keen and, and talented actually at writing. He likes writing lyrics and things like that, which would normally be something I Your would domain. engage. So Paul would, you know, just head off with some chords, but he would come up with melodies and lyrics. He'd have this sort of put his hand by his head and his finger would go from side to side as he... Right, you know, think this through with what, that thinking of a melody. Of a, a, a thinking of a melody, <laughs> it was quite a idiosyncratic thing. Right, sort of like conducting himself. Yeah. Martin is waving his finger, finger. by his yeah, ear, just sort of like a conductor, yeah, backwards and forwards. Um, so, in a sense, that's how the then that's how the verse came about. So right. they became. We, we didn't really realize that. They bore no relationship to each other in terms of key or, or whatever. We just, was there a groove going? I mean, did you have a... Uh, was that kind of... We probably, we probably had a groove going. We probably had yeah. a, a loop yeah. a loop going. Um, uh, and then we got to the great moment when we tried to put them together and realised, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the point where the two of the, they went out for some lunch it's a very unusual story, this, because, you know, I'm always the first one to be at the front of the lunch queue, so <laughs> quite what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, and I You just, could smell money. That's what it was. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And I just sat, sat with the two, you know, musical sections. Yeah. Uh, transposing one against the other, yeah. you know, taking one up, taking one down, whatever it's got. Because I'm not really, you know, I'm not... I'm not... A, trained musician in that sense so mm. i was just using my ears to kind of go okay which is the least car crash i, I think of, you just went past something that i was just using my ears which is the most important <laughs> thing for musicians and songwriters because uh, the verse is in f major and the key is in g major yeah um and obviously it works very well with the word lifted you are literally lifting lifted, the yeah. key you know a tone yeah but Presumably, you were trying to bet them both in the same key, were you, to start with, or or was that not something you ever were you trying to sort of keep them in the same key, and then it didn't realise it, it was okay to move up? I've no idea, Tim. I was just really, <laughs> kind of, really just experimenting with what what felt good to me. Yeah. I mean, after it was a hit, and I, I remember meeting my old friend Pete Wingfield, uh, oh, yeah. who who produced the Kane Gang. We're, we're, we're ready record. with some Pete Wingfield questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And Pete said, oh, it's you know, great the way you, you know, modulated in that thing, you know, kind yeah. of I mean, yeah. he, the sort of thing he would have done, because mm. he's like got immense... Terrific musician, so, keyboard like, a session player. Okay. He'd had hits in the 70s. And Soul Encyclopedia. Right. Country yeah. Music Encyclopedia, actually. Yeah. And uh, so he, you know, he, he congratulated me on using this uh, technique that he probably not unfairly thought he had some... You know, he he taught me this sort yes. of thing. You know, yeah. and I said no, I really didn't know what well, I was that's doing. Typical, it? It's a genius moment yeah. because, as Tim said, you know that the, they go hand in hand. It's it's seems like the simplest thing in the world to say to sing lifted and then raise the key by a tone, but but emotionally, it's that's the that's the moment everybody goes, ah, oh, I feel that. Yeah. I think. Yeah, because I think normally, I think if you're listening to the song and you're writing it in one key, I mean, just to sort of play a bit of the verse, I think yeah. we we're in F and it's got a sort of pedal bass over the F, but it's sort of... And then you've got the bridge. 
you sort of writing, you could be lifted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. what you're doing is you could be lifted. And it just flows naturally with the melody, beautifully. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. never heard it. It started to sound like Ben Folds Five covering. <laughs> wow, left it. I've never heard of Ben Folds Five. But yeah. there wasn't any bad. There was, there was no bad language though. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. But yeah. as a counterpoint to that, actually, sort of melodically, it kind of drops. Yes. So, which which is also quite an interesting yeah. thing. So the keys going up, but the yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I I would imagine that would suit. Uh, what's the singer's name? Tundi. Twenty, yeah, two had lovely, lovely tone, but I don't imagine he had a, a massive a big, range. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so a exactly. perfect pop voice. Yeah, yeah, it's unusual. So retains, it's baritone, isn't it? Which is unusual yeah. for a pop records. Pop record, soul, soul records. pop. Yeah, soul yeah. to have a baritone singer. It's un- yeah. I think that's yeah. maybe it's so unusual, but it works brilliantly. And of know? course, you know, we saw what w- what happens in that in that situation. Should you ever write a song that has this key change in the in the chorus? Then what is the next problem? How do you get back to the verse without sounding clunky? And of course, what did we do? <laughs> we just had a drop with with drums, with drum no, oh. and then then went back to it. So we didn't have to do any fancy yep. chord work whatsoever. So that's why you get that, you know, little kind of drum fill into back into yeah, the verse. Yeah, to reestablish, you uh, give you a break from one key back into that. Yeah. Sometimes, I, I personally, having uh, done that verse in one key then upper tone to the chorus I think there's something about the relationship of going back down again where it actually sounds like it's gone up yeah mm-hmm. it's yeah, weirdly yeah, yeah. Um, I mean I think because I also don't know what I'm doing but I often employ totally. those yeah those. I mean, and particularly with the, what, I'm, what I'm saying to Tim as well because melodically you would actually go up into again, it again so it doesn't yeah. feel like no, you've really right. dropped yeah, yeah. but also you're talking about the clunkiness again of how you would normally get back with some ridiculous you know sort of chord you know dominant sevenths or whatever to try and get back into the key before yeah. that's probably why most songs when they have key changes do it at the ends because they don't try and get back yeah, yeah. so normally it's exactly. the last chorus yeah, yeah. might you know yeah. after yeah. the middle eight or something would go up a key and then yeah. you don't have to get back anywhere yeah. because there's a fade out you know yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Barry Mandelow's um can't smile without you is the yeah. if you want to hear key changes non Not, non-stop yeah yes it, it it just i think every verse goes up and then the choruses at the end just and also of course the fantastic um bg's song for diana ross um, I, was, I was just Jamie about to say I, I was just about to say bg's were oh. were kings of yeah making it feel as though the song was constantly yeah chain reaction is brilliant but that's brilliantly done isn't it that's is it chain reaction it is chain reaction but crikey the amount of but that on that song after the chorus they go through a very elaborate junk 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 is that cycle of fifths or something songs trip out Hey, Songstripper fans, this is Astral Drive. If you like the music of Todd Rundgren or classic 70s songwriters, Sunbleach Rock with soulful vibes, let's take a trip. Astral Drive, now available on Spotify, Apple Music, or Low Jinx Records. So Lifted seems to me to be a song which excels at helping people express their feelings, initially of despair and then hope, 
that's quite non-specific in terms of a story, but every line describes feelings using metaphors of rain, darkness, new horizons, etc. Um, so while many songs sort of try and tell a story in prose, yours is what I would say is more poetic. Was that a conscious decision? I think the poetic, rainy stuff in that mm. is, is a lot more Paul Tucker right. than, than, than me. I mean, not that I'm incapable of doing that sort of sure. stuff. But, yeah, that surprises but, but, me because I always think, having written with you, that you generally come, you, you turn up for sessions with concepts, load of titles. <laughs> no, but they're kind of poet, they're poetic <laughs> ideas. Yeah, yeah. You know. That's no, my... no, the central part, uh, you know, as I said, was really having this idea of, you know, we could be lifted. And my, the, the hopeful bit, and uh, as I, you know, as I came in today and you were, uh, you know, luxuriating in the closest thing to heaven, the, the, oh. the cane gang. Yes. And it's quite interesting to me that one of the key words in that is it's uh, this could be the closest thing to heaven right lifted oh. said we could oh, be lifted yep. and Very i think it's point. quite a it's quite a key word in that in, in it sort of it it it's you know this is how it could be guys sure. yeah it's a context it's not, of it's hope, not great isn't it? yeah exactly that we could get out of this yeah we could get out of and this. I, I you know i I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't a conscious decision. No, on actually, my, I suppose my, they're both very spiritual. I mean, heaven's obviously a spiritual term, but then lifted also yeah. connotates yeah. heaven, doesn't it, yeah. to an extent? So that's why you're it going must up be, to... You know, from when I was a kid and my mum and dad were playing Mahalia Jackson records, maybe uh, right. some of that sort of seeped into my... Uh, are they, they gospel records? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, she, well, she was a gospel... Well, they were into ink spots and stuff like that, but... Hmm. Um, but definitely oh. Mahalia Jackson was something that, um, you know, it was definitely better than their James Last records. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we, inter we interviewed Kim Rue on an earlier podcast about his hit for Katrina and the Waves, Walking on Sunshine. And that song is relentlessly upbeat. And it's been used also for a variety of adverts and placements and lifted as well as always popping up in many different scenarios, yeah. you know, whether it's, you know, TV, film, adverts. Do you think... This is why they've both been so successful because they are quite general. They're not telling a story as such, but it's all about feelings. Yeah, I mean, you're right about Walking on Sunshine. In fact, that was most recently used in my uh, experience for as one of the three songs in my youngest daughter's um, end of year right. video that they, you know, yep. there it was. They were all dancing to sure. Walking on Sunshine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think I could be that relentlessly hopeful. To be I was honest. just going to say, <laughs> it, it, relentlessly ho <laughs> hopeful. Yeah. Um, I don't think I, I'd struggle to s sustain that yeah. uh, personally as a, as a as a writer. But um, yeah, is that why they fit in? Uh, it's, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying saying before. You know, we're all we're always um, looking for new ways to say, you know higher and uh, yeah but you know that yeah. these 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 things so yeah I, I mean it's a friend texted me yesterday going oh i've just heard lifted on lbc and an advert on lbc you know F. so 
another um, 15 grand in the yeah. pot <laughs> it is not, I'm not sure it was quite as much as that for that uh, one I still yeah, remember what, what was the advert for I know? can't remember I mean I remember <laughs> s- saying it's fine send me the money have you had an yeah, accident I can't yeah. quite <laughs> have you had a car accident which wasn't your <laughs> fault <laughs> <laughs> that's the um, yeah. it, I you know, but it it you're right. It was in like it was in the last series of Black Mirror as well. Right, bizarre, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So our other guests, um, some of our other guests like uh, Graham Goldman, Tony Hatch, uh, they would be working on an idea probably with just the guitar, or piano, and pencil and paper, um, the same kind of way that Rodgers and Hammerstein or Lennon McCartney would work. Nowadays, the song is often written with a full arrangement playing from uh, the computer. Yeah. Was, would that have been the case with Lifted? You know, would the, no. that was a kind of traditional set uh, electric piano, bit, yeah, move bit, things bit, around, yeah. and maybe before a, you even took it to programming, probably had a loop going. Yeah, that right. was the thing at the time, yeah. and yeah. you wanted to use loops because that's what. People, yeah, yeah, you know, and the loop from the demo is the loop from the. Is, is the loop on the record, I think. Oh, well, I spotted Tim. Uh, we were playing it this morning, and Tim said, do you think this is a loop? And I said, no, I think you know, it sounds programmed. Like, you know, the, the sounds are like the sounds of a loop, but maybe it was split no, up. No, I think we had a loop, and I think the loop made it onto the onto the record. It's sounds, quite, sounds um, good, doesn't it? Yeah, and also an interesting thing, because at that point in time, of course, I, I would have been going, hey, let me produce it. You know, I can produce it. Yeah, we, I can produce yeah. with yeah. And uh, an interesting aspect of that is, I'm sure I wouldn't have got away with it, but one of the, uh, and quite rightly, but one of the things when I was projecting about, well, you know, if this is going to be, you know, if I was doing the production here, I think I'd look for a better, um, a, something better as a, as a intro instrumental hook mm. than. Really? No, but the interesting part of that is, and the reason why I thought that was because, you know, I witnessed that come into being, which was basically us sitting there going, right, we need need an intro, you know, we need it. And uh, Paul just went, I don't know, something like, you know, it's Mm. just like a few few notes out of the chord that, you know. And it was so, so much an afterthought and and simple and whatever. I yeah. I never yeah. respected it as an idea. Yeah. But if you if you weren't there, no, then you just go, oh, that's nice, isn't it? It actually sounds like a bird in flight. Yeah. It just sounds yeah, yeah. very, very so it's, Also, it's just, you use as a second of the chords, so you've got the A over the G. Which is the same as a chorus. Right. You can be lifted, which is right. quite unusual anyway to have the... Tim, explain that again, Slava. So we're in a key of G for the chorus, and the guitar riff uses that A note, which would be the second note of the scale of the G, sort of as its riff. And then... That's, same as a chorus. We could be lifted. It's that A. Okay. That sort of provides that bit of tension, I suppose, which right. is... Uh, Interesting. You know, I mean, it obviously wasn't necessarily thought of at the time that that's what we were doing, but yeah. it clearly it relates very well to itself. And uh, I think the other thing but, also is it just... In, I'm just thinking about the time this came out, and it was a very high-energy time where you've got, like, Oasis, you've got Blurb, you've also got D-Ream, and you've got yeah, these yeah. big hits. And this is really low-key, yeah. in a good way, 
but you haven't got much going on as you say the, the voice really sings out because you're not overcrowding the arrangement it's very warm isn't it very warm I remember <laughs> hearing it I think when it first came out on Johnny Walker's Radio 2 show right. it was a Sunday afternoon he was just raving about this new band called Lighthouse Family and listen to this mm. um, and I remember it coming out and thinking that is very different to everything else that's on the radio yeah. and it actually although you've got breakbeats in there and you've got modern instrumentation and it was you know in a then a breakbeat would be associated you know traditionally with hip hop or dance it also fitted that Radio 2 audience perfectly. Yeah. Well, again, maybe not on purpose, but it, you know, you've got that kind of mixture of the two areas crossing over from sort of club to, yeah. you know, pop. Yeah, I suppose interesting, because I think at the, at the time, and to some extent they maybe succeeded in this, I think there was a, there was a maybe some sort of, I mean, it was a very sort of, and, and one reason why people hate the record and why you know why they would sort of despise the the uh, crass banality right or something you know and it's, it's because it's it, it was very sort of mood music you know and mm. in a sense there I think there was an aspiration to be you know somewhat you know create something like Sade had created which mm. is one of yeah. the hardest things in sure. The, but it's, yeah. it is actually one of the harder. Phil, you would know that. You know how many times have there been artists that have come with a thing where the where yeah the, the, where the label have said, you know, if we could <laughs> just that Sade thing, and you can't, yeah. you no, know, yeah. Sade is unbelievable. It's incredible, timeless, mm. wonderful. It's so uh, economic, economic, and so yeah. you, you know, it it, it sounds simple and it kind of is but it's yes. so hard to make something substantial out yes. of the, these simple items and you know the writers yeah. involved and obviously yeah, the great robin miller who produced that stuff is uh you know it's it's uh it, it works it's, for it's a while I mean, I, I think dido had it for a few albums yeah I, where I she agree. was absolutely flying but then I, I don't think it goes out of fashion, it doesn't go out of fashion but when yeah. it's not done right then literally it is it's, not, it's nothing there so the beauty of yeah. this song, you know, Lifted and Smooth Operator or White Flag by Dido is, yes, they're economical, but there's a story there or there's a feeling there and it, and it takes you somewhere. And it's a singer also that you, you, you feel compelled yeah. to listen to their story. But also, as Tim said earlier, really, the thing is, there's, there, there are singers with a very limited range. Yeah. Right, and which just, is and they've got pop. a tone. They've got a tone yep. and a limited range, yeah. and that can actually be such a strength if you yeah. if you use it because correctly. It, it creates it, it creates it sort of creates a um, a constant. You, if you have a singer that has a small range, there's no point trying to write a melody outside of that range because you, your song is going to be dismissed. And, it, and I guess it it uh, forces you into a situation where you've got to play you know the the things you've got to play with you haven't got the easy out card of going i know and then we'll then the chorus will be <laughs> and not up the octave or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. so you've got to be a lot yeah. cleverer in terms of making sure the 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 syncopation of the melody mm. is is like key to the whole thing and yes. how mm. how that evolves and that creates its own dynamic i think that's that, that's we're touching on something here which i think is the skill of songwriting is the fact that the, if a singer has a smaller range then you do have to start thinking about really thinking about melody really thinking about the lyrics i'm one just talking actually about that i think you were talking about i think some of the most virtuoso 
musicians write some of the worst music. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And very often, the limit, the more limited you are, you know, technically, the better the songs. And I think we've seen that throughout the decades. You yeah. Know, from yeah. But I mean, the song this came out what late nineties? We talking? I'm saying mid nineties. Mid nineties. But uh-huh. I think you influenced a lot of bands afterwards with the sound. So certainly, like the slightly cooler sounds of say Morchiba, for example. Right. You, the, you know the trippy drum sound, or even Cafe Del Mar, where you've got those you know those. The Ibiza yeah, yeah. kind of chill out music. It's very much the yes. early version of that, isn't it? And that's yeah. still popular today, you know, 25 yeah. years later. Yeah, it's, um, sort of, it's sort of like a chill out ballad, doesn't it? In some respects. Is that what you're saying? Tim? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, so uh, this year you're standing as a candidate for the UK's Performing Rights Society as writer director. Yeah. You've had a history of being openly involved in politics. What drives you to be involved at a deeper level? Vote for Martin Brammer. Vote for the guy with the big glasses. <laughs> um, oh, what can I say without sounding uh, somewhat twee and corny? I think uh, it's something I've considered getting more deeply involved in for, I think you'd probably be aware of this, for, you know, for quite a long time, you know more than a decade um but the difference is right now i just sort of you know there's a bit of my schedule freed up because i you know it's something that was taking up a lot of my time i stopped doing at uh, at the turn of the year and therefore i thought well you know this seems like maybe the moment when i could take something like this on and do it justice yes um as opposed to just you know doing just turning doing, up d- just to, yeah, turning yeah. up for the minimum am- amount of meetings and you know throwing a bit a bit of whatever it's quite a deep you know it's it's complicated stuff the things that prf and the world of publishing etc have to deal with right now is extremely complicated and i wouldn't really recommend somebody doing it if they weren't prepared to do more you know more digging deeper into yes. the into mm. the whole thing which you know being intrinsically somebody who likes to just wing it um really oh. um then i i wouldn't you know I, yeah. I i think at this point in time i could actually spend a bit of time I guess the main issue we're, we're talking about here is is the songwriters' uh, livelihoods in peril because because their royalties are being um, um, how to put this uh, <laughs> the, the uh, streaming services don't uh, pay a very fair share to the people that created the music. Yeah, and uh, you know people would be amazed if they if 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 they looked at how you know different platforms pay uh, quite substantially different rates mm-hmm. uh, and in fact you know obviously I guess Spotify gets the most of the um, criticism on this but if if you look at something like YouTube is like they're even worse you know mm-hmm. and, and they and they really um, use their almost uh, monopolistic position. Mm. Yes. Um, These rates have been negotiated, presumably with the major labels. Yeah, I mean, we we have a situation where, 
you know, there, there's certain things that that PRS make. Um, they do a fantastic job, by the way. Yeah, I, well, they in very, they, 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 very. I suppose just to say, PRS is an organisation that collects royalties on behalf of songwriters. Yeah, and and the world of you know streaming and what is how different performances because that's what the P of performing rights you know yeah. is for. Yeah, so that you know how people define something as a as a stream or as a public performance etc it's all mm. it's all in the melting pot of that will affect how people get uh paid rewarded for their efforts for the next 50 years yeah so it's 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 a really crucial crucial moment so um you know maybe martin brammer can you know yeah. solve those yeah. Insoluble problems somehow. Yeah. Martin Brammer as writer-director <laughs> for, for PRS. I mean, YouTube's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's pretty much the only form of video which you wouldn't pay to watch. So if you're watching Netflix or Apple or Disney Plus or yeah. even Prime, Amazon Prime, they're, they're all subscription-based things, but YouTube is free. So you've got adverts basically supporting it, yeah. but it's free. And they, you know, there's no reason why it should be. Just, it's just been that way since it launched 20 years ago, I suppose. So the gatekeepers of the industry yeah. uh, now are no longer in total control. I'm talking about record companies, publishing companies, um, the traditional um, homes of, uh, of creating mu and selling music. Do you agree? Well, I would, well, I would agree that they're not in total control. But I think... Uh, Is that good? Uh, yes, um, up to a point. So I think in a in a world where absolutely anybody can release something on a worldwide streaming platform, yeah, yeah, that's a double-edged sword. I think I think mm. the fact that there's no filter to anything, and I think that if there were labels who were who saw their role as being uh, artistic curators, I like that. Yeah, um, who would invest in uh, musicians and acts mm -hmm. and by invest I mean give time and money to people for which yes. they get an, a, a reward and support them in terms of building a career yep, yep. and showing them some stuff that maybe they didn't know existed yes. you know mentoring and etc and take yeah. some money for it but, but that sounds but, like a great record company it sounds it? like the old days I mean Mozart and Beethoven were commissioned weren't they by wealthy people to write music for them but but the great opportunity now is that that you know but I don't think record labels should really take 75 percent of no of the of the share for doing that because they no longer really ma manufacture things I couldn't possibly but, comment but um, yeah. but uh, but they could take a chunk, mm -hmm. yeah, know? and maybe they could. Take, I don't know. You know, you take fifty percent, or you know, it's a joint venture. Obviously, sure. that's how indie indie deals work. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a there's a push towards that anyway. Because if you're a, if you're Coldplay or whatever, you come to the end of your five album deal. If you if you're staying with a major, you are definitely getting more than 50% or whatever of, of the royalties, you know, they, you, yes. because yes. they could just do it themselves. You've leveraged the position so you, you, so, the, yeah. so naturally, and, and, and at the smaller end, there, is, there, there are circumstances where people who have managed to do this on their own by going through 
label well, services. I say on label service, services, Cobalt yeah. or something like that. Flip side of that is, uh, you know, if we sat here with a copy of Music Week now and we look down the top 50 airplay chart, which is the kind of thing that uh, songwriters look at because that gives you some indication of who's earning the money, I bet you couldn't find more than three or four tracks that weren't ultimately by coming mm. through major labels as their as their portal. So 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 the major label is still quite a big gatekeeper and and in terms of And a and a good curator maybe. Maybe. Lots of shrugging and shoulders. But part of that is um you know, because they have the I'm I'm gonna sort of level a bit of blame perhaps there at I think radio, BBC radio, Radio One, Six Music, etc., do an amazing job of, you know, looking at new acts, etc. But I am gonna say that I think there is still a, a a a strong leaning towards the acts who get the airplay having that specific relationship through either major label pluggers if you're in the case of mm-hmm. Radio One um, or you know even Six Music which I love you know I think it's amazing it's an amazing mm-hmm. thing it's a, and it's a it's a growing station mm-hmm. and uh, you know if you look at the the tunes that get played the most on Six Music they tend to be the hip in from hip indie yes. labels that have a relationship with major labels well not major labels oh, but they're, the they're but they have yeah yeah they've got so you know i don't know yeah i'm, I'm not pointing na- name no. particular labels but if you if it's still a little bit in too, mu- too much of a cl- closed sure. shop i th- i think yeah uh, the way people are sitting there and they yes they're curating as a as a station but they're curating what comes into them rather it, than yes. being outward looking yeah. and going, what is what is that around there? So they're curating their mate's music instead of... Uh, oh, I'm not saying that, Phil. That's no, putting words in my... It's the same as anything, isn't BBC. No. And, uh, um, I'm not. I'm not even saying it's. I just yeah, think it's, it's human. Human, it's human nature. nature. If someone's giving you something on a plate, you're gonna. You're not gonna go and look yeah. elsewhere. But now it's much more. Okay, you know, if you spend two years building up your numbers. Yes. Then we might consider, you know, supporting yeah. this act. So that numbers meaning likes on your YouTube, social video media, or, Instagram, yeah. Instagram, what have you. You know, followers yeah. on your first releases at, at, on, you know, Spotify, etc. Do you think that the the streaming services kind of perpetuate um, heritage acts and sort of hegemony or hegemony, whatever the word is, because in effect they know that you might like a song by. Elton John from 1977, and then all you get recommended on your stream are similar songs from, you know, or from similar years. Yeah. From similar years. I find that very that hard. Would, that would suit me fine. I don't know about well, you. It, well, uh, that, that, yeah. it suits you fine because you don't probably hear, uh, in my opinion, because I'll tell you what the story about this, but I, don't, I think it suits you fine because you assume there isn't this music out there now which you would want to hear. So recently I, I, I did a text with some friends and I said, guys, what is good to listen to? Because I'm just getting the same old rubbish on my Spotify stream right. page. And we all put sort of four or five tracks on a playlist together. Right. And I listened to stuff that I was absolutely blew me away, but I would never have heard it organically through mm. radio or Spotify, whatever, you know, stuff. So I was going to say, I'm, I'm a bad person to 
comment on that because I, I, I never like listen to stuff that it says recommends. Yeah, I, I never no. go with the alga- algorithm sure. sort of thing. Contrary, but, but there's an algorithm contra- for your algorithm. For, yeah, your, for your the contrary guy. Contrary algorithm, algorithm. The contrary algorithm. But, but it doesn't interest me really if yeah. particularly it's so I was just thinking, you know, when you're at school, of course, all your mates are always going like, yeah. I'll lend you this album. Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of how yeah. you end up, uh, you know, hearing so much music, I think more so than certainly for me than on, uh, than on the radio then, much as I enjoyed listening to the radio then. Well, what? It was, yeah. it was Dark Side of the Moon or... And I think, I think that must still exist. I mean, my... my youngest, yeah. you know, he's, he's 11, 11 years old. I was quite pleased when I saw on a, you know, one of our end of year things where the kids had a playlist or whatever and, you know, every kid in our class had a playlist. And the thing that she put on hers was, like, I, would, I, I think was deliberately obscure. Where she was basically, <laughs> I, even though she likes Billie Eilish or whatever, you know, yeah. she's like, I'm not putting Billie Eilish down. I'm putting something yeah, really yeah. cool down. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's I, I thought chip off the old block. Yeah, right? chip off okay. the old block. So searching about lifted online, I was surprised how many people say it was played at a family f- member's funeral. I suppose it makes sense in spiritual sense of being lifted, but has this been a surprise to you? Was it something that was thought about at the time? Uh, definitely wasn't thought about at the time, no. but I mean, certainly I've been in songwriting situations many a time where you, you think, oh, this would be like the, the song that that could both be played at a wedding yeah. and a funeral. Yeah. Wow. And then you think, wow, I'm really onto something now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even a... Even a baptism when you lift a baby up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all all family occasions. Absolutely. Uh, but no, it wasn't. Uh, definitely no, wasn't. It does seem to be. I mean, it's, it, I was surprised online how many people are saying it. You know, right. uh, played at my grandma's but, or mother's or whatever funeral. Right. And, uh, I could specialise in that going forward, couldn't it's I? Brilliant. Really? Yeah, songs. The funeral about, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get him we in. Need, we need something about death. Um, <laughs> Brammer. Brammer. Death. Yeah, but Brammer. hopeful. Yeah, hopeful. De- yeah. More broadly about your songwriting, uh, would you agree there's often a political element to your lyrics? For example, um, you're very unbanned, The Kane Gang, uh, Motortown, which I'm just going to quote to you here. <laughs> Business is booming in a come-good zone. The ca- cash may have gone, but there's hope on loan. Everybody's glory-bound. Got it made in Motortown. Spread the news all around. They work for pennies in Motortown. Yeah. I'm one of the few people uh, to have had a US top 30 hit with a song about a car factory, mm. which uh, that was that was all written about the uh, at the time of the Nissan factory being built in in Sunderland, uh, in Sunderland. Yeah, yeah. and it being you know celebrated as the the you know cure all for. The, the ills that had befallen the northeast in terms mm. of all the pits that had closed down and whatever, which is what I mm. sort of witnessed over the the sort of Two years. Five, four or five years and before you know mm-hmm. in that and coming mm. from a you know I'm you know a, a living northeast cliche in the sense of you know my dad was a miner, my dad's dad was a miner, my dad's dad's dad was a miner, wow. you know? yeah. and uh, so. That was, you know, written from a very uh, cynical, me, mm. uh, yeah. cynical, ironic mm. uh, mm-hmm. 
viewpoint and again was actually mis sort of counterpoint of the the song musically itself mm. is quite a jolly a jolly yeah yeah and uh which i really uh you know i, I like that uh putting those two elements together and and yep. uh and sort of slipping the Ooh, can we say message political uh, the politics anyway yeah uh, in on under you know most obviously i think no disrespect to our american cousins but i wouldn't imagine many people in america were really could give um a hoot about you know a car factory in the northeast strangely enough greg alexander uh, of new radicals yeah. big fan of that song and he's from detroit yeah motor, sure. another motor town yeah so uh, I think he he enjoyed more the um, probably the 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 record and the and the feel and the the upbeat feel to it. Just as a little um, about songwriting, uh, Motortown is in six eight, and for for those uh, listening, like another famous example would be Tears for Fears. Everybody wants to rule the world. It has this really compelling rhythm. Like Motortown, yeah, of one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, yeah, three, yeah. and it rolls along, mm-hmm. and it, it gives you really. As, um, is that six eight or, or is twelve eight maybe? Or twelve eight, yeah, Same gives you a nice, that, yeah, it's, yeah, it's well. a really nice feeling. Yeah, yeah. Fears, yeah I mean, yeah. yeah, definitely. Moving on to some of your other Kane Gang um, tunes, uh, closest thing to heaven has some very fruity chords, especially the ultimate chord before the chorus. Was that a uh, Pete Wingfield, your producer, who's a top uh, session player? Would he have introduced a f- chord so fruity as to? He uh, might have. I, that's that's a that's a very good. It's still bearing fruit to this day. Uh, chord, I, 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 I don't want to say the wrong thing because one of please I mean, one say of, the wrong thing. Well, not not only because of my you know the, the my memory might be mm. different. An amusing uh, problem with that was. Um, on the one and only real Kangang tour we did. Our London headline show was at the Electric Ballroom in Camden and I think we'd had a certain amount of sort of cold, uh, you know, sore throat problems and we had lots of medication. Hello. And uh, literally, you know, ears, ha- kids. Ha- Harley yeah. Street, medical official. Oh, did you get the twelve shot? I, I can't remember. I know we just went. You know, let's go to Harley Street. Yeah, like, it might be all right. We got to the high point of the show, the big hit, closest thing to heaven, and off we went. And we, you know, did did the intro, the verse, the first chorus. Then I, for some reason, thought I was in the middle section. Oh, um, oh I've, been, I, I've been there. So I didn't come back in with the second verse. Right. And everybody was kind of, what's going oh, on? I know oh, that no. feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's yeah. going on? And uh, I'm thinking, what are you guys? You know, come and there's, on. There's 800 oh, so people. Look, you guys are all wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Like, what's. And yeah. of course, the so the modulation is a like, semitone modulation. So yes. few people were kind of realised what maybe was in my head and were sort of tentatively trying to shift, shift up a semitone. Kamel wow. on bass, uh, oh my, my God. lovely <laughs> friend, Wicks, Paul Wicks, Wickens as an MD. Wow. And Later, of course, in... Uh, Paul McCartney's MD for the last 20-something yeah. years. Yeah. Um, taught him all the... 
all in yeah. the life. Um, but uh, lovely moment. Yeah, yeah it was a great moment. And, and when you got off stage, as I recall, we got into this. Well, maybe there's a like they used to have a lift or something at the back. Anyway, we all yeah. got into this thing at, at the end. <laughs> and it would have made a great comedy thing because I'm yeah, at the yeah, front yeah. and the whole band's behind me going, what what, what went on there? What are you guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they all went, you idiot. Yeah. I mean, the amount of times you, people think that they, everyone else is wrong, but the chance of you being the only one who was correct out of a, what, a stage full of other people, if you think about it, mm. logically, it's unlikely. How did you what? get out of it? I, you know, tentatively and, yeah. you know, yeah. not very well. And uh, that was your hit. And we we played it as a as an encore oh. properly, uh, having realised that. Um, oh, right, right. Yeah. And I, so y- I apologised. Yeah. Pe- and uh, and and the review, possibly in NMA, I think, was quite a good punchline of the fact that we got it's quite a slated review in the in NME who said that the whole thing was, uh, uh, you know, boringly slick and faultless. Oh wow! <laughs> Apart so, from so he maybe had not been at the gig at all, or, or, possi- or gone, or had gone, had gone earlier, or yeah, the yeah. only thing he'd come in for was he saw the saw the the encore and thought, yeah. oh, those guys—they're just so. I'd yeah. love to be called boring, me slick and faultless. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That chord though, is it? It's like a bam, 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 bam. But it's kind of like. Oh. A big pitch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of got an, an F sharp and an F in it, though, hasn't it? It's like a. Is that a chord? That's maybe. Got a flat 13, isn't it? Maybe, yeah. I it's, think uh, it's the James Brown chord. When you've, if it's James uh, Brown, now I'm starting absolutely. to think Pete might have had something to do with that. Cause it's almost James Bond as well, that, that chord. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just full of, full of tension. Anything isn't with it? the word James in it. But yeah, no. And very. then you glide across it and everything relaxes again. Yeah. Got some big falsettos in that as well. I was pretty high. Yeah, yeah. 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 Would that be you doing all of that? Or? That was me doing all those falsettos. Wow. Cheers. A bit of double track every now and then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. We, really we were just listening yeah. to it before, before the, the, the show. I was actually watching the video. I saw the, the video and I also watched the Top of the Pots performance, which was on YouTube. Right. Oh, it must be 84, I think. Yeah. And um, you, what I thought was a harmonica isn't. It's a hone and a melodica. Melodica, yes. which yeah. is, which, for our listeners, it's a blown keyboard instrument, which sounds a bit like a harmonica. Uh, but it has a sort of two or three octave uh, keyboard on it. There we go. Yeah. Exactly right, Phil. <laughs> as, as, opposed, as opposed to a which, harmonica, which is. Was um, it controversial at the time? Or was it. <laughs> the melodic. I think it was. I kind of always viewed it not in a negative way, but I just thought, well, well, it's. it's you know, equated it in terms of flavour with a sort of, you know, with a Stevie Wonder harmonica, yes. you know, and exactly. it's, a, it's sort of exactly. an easy way of doing that because there was yeah. only, yeah, you know, there's only yeah. like three people in the world that can do that yeah. sort of stuff convincingly. Exactly. I mean, Stevie Wonder's got this, what, well, there must be an angel solo on the uh, Eurythmics, isn't it? Sort of there. Yeah. That's a chromatic harmonica. That's a chromatic yeah, exactly. harmonica, but yeah, that's what he was, plays, and this is, I suppose, as close as you can get to a chromatic harmonica. Exactly. Without, yeah. so that was without being Stevie Wonder. Song stripper. Hey, this is Tim Jackson here, and you're listening to highlights from my debut album, Better Late Than Never, available now on all good streaming sites. It's been called a melodic slice of power pop.
That's Better Late Than Never by Tim Jackson. So, uh, Tina Turner. Yeah. Covered your song. What a thrill it must have been when you heard that record, no? Well, a great story about the Tina Turner cut was, was that was a song that I wrote with uh, Ben Barson. Ben and I got together, wrote songs for about four years, shared a studio together, wrote more or less exclusively with each other for about four years. And when mm. we got together, we were pretty hot. I had lifted, he had this, you know, Gabrielle, big hit with Gabrielle. <laughs> and we got on well, and, and, and for four years we worked together, and virtually everything we did just didn't work out. You know, the artist got dropped, the A&R man got fired, the artist got pregnant, the, you know, just everything was just... No good. Well, no it wasn't good, your no fault good. the artist got pregnant. Because <laughs> I mean, that. <laughs> good point. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Um, fair. Yeah, yeah. Fair question. Okay. Um, and uh, and and eventually we just kind of stopped working together because what do you do in that circumstance? You kind of, you know, there's you can't you can't change yourself. So I guess you change the, your partner. Yes. Even though we we you know we thought we wrote great you know some great tunes so we hadn't been writing together for maybe three years or something after that and um you know there was a point in time where every one of your songwriting pals you'd ask them what what are you up to what what are you doing and you know without exception they'd go oh uh you know they're looking for this uh track for tina turner because they're gonna do a greatest hits and then they want the track to right. you know, a new track to launch yeah, the album yeah. so that would be amazing wouldn't it you know that's the thought and I literally just went I'm not wasting my time on that this <laughs> right. song, you know what are the chances sure. everybody's working you know coming up with a Tina and so on you know yeah. and I never made any uh, you know didn't put any sessions in or time going let's write a Tina song and then one night after we played football on a Thursday you know, in the pub afterwards, Ben says, "Hey, Mark, what's what's this about? Uh, Tina Turner's going to record that song we wrote, uh, which wow. we'd written with another artist. Wow. Um, you know, maybe it's four years previously. <laughs> and Jamie Nelson, the A and R guy, had always remembered that song and yeah. loved the song. One of the good guys. Uh, one of the good guys, Jamie, and he chose that as the as the lead track Brilliant. for her." greatest hits one so so after four years of something going wrong 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 mm. wrong and then about three years later yeah finally something something went right and uh we got you know a belated and long overdue and i have to say very well deserved uh mm. you know cut by a legend and here's a funny bit of that story is as well one of my best friends uh was a music journalist called Alan Jackson, who I originally met because he came to interview me when I was in the Kane Gang, so I came up to Newcastle and we became really close friends. And um, anyway, uh, when they were doing the promo for the greatest hits, Alan was the journalist that they got to do the what they called the EPK and that the electronic right. press kit. Oh, yes. So he yeah. went to Geneva to to do the interview, the interview yeah, with yeah. Tina that they would use all around the world. Yeah. And uh, so Alan says, says, gets to the point about, so tell us about the new single, Tina, you know, great new song called Open Arms. What, you know, what's the story behind that? And she said, well, it's an old Al Green song. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, 
And well, what a compliment. And, 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 and Alan said, oh, are you sure? Really? He goes, yes, difficult, it's, difficult moment. It's an, it's, an, it's an old Al Green song. But when she sings that song, it's probably half the melody she ripped up and threw out the window, I would imagine. Not really. No, but, no, no, but, no, no I would, I would say, Alan, you know, being a very lovely yeah. and charming person, you know, he said, no, it's, it's not. Yeah. He said, I know stay it's together. because yeah. it's... Uh, because it's, uh, you know, my friend Martin wrote it, actually. So, like, I got, and she just said, oh, well, tell him thank you very much. It's such a lovely song. Oh, <laughs> wow. And produced by another song stripper guest, Jimmy Hogarth. That's oh. right. Yeah, yeah. Made a good record, didn't they? Um, okay, so Tim, over to the, the big, big question. Is it the big question? The big question. Well, actually, before we just, we've got one last question from a fan, uh, which is I think the first time we've had a fan write in and ask a question, a guy called Mr. Martin Stockman, who uh, raves about your brilliant work <laughs> <laughs> on many albums by James Morrison. He yeah. asks, where does the inspiration for your lyrics come from and do you ever write poetry? <laughs> well... Uh, I don't write poetry unless by you know that's accidentally included as a bonus part of a of a lyric. Mm-hmm. Where do you get your ideas? Our great friend Colin Campsey's great one. Where do you get your ideas? Other people. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, my ideas. I mean, you 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 constantly. I think once you once your mind works works in a certain way where you view yourself as you know a creative songwriter then you you, you're always kind of uh aware of Mm. things that will just oh that could make a good song oh that would be that's an Mm. interesting idea just in everyday life conversation exactly over a coffee that's a great title for a song do you use voice memos on your phone and record snippets yeah yeah i mean I mean, and very often they don't ever get, get sure. used. But um, I mean, it was quite interesting. I had this uh, had this project. Maybe I maybe I shouldn't put that in the past tense. Um, this project called Hazers with my yes. songwriting buddy Adam Argyle and Jordan Riley, which I've just been doing sort of more work on also with the guy called Sam Klempner, um, and. It was interesting that because when we when we started writing the songs for that, and all we were trying to do was write songs with a certain kind of youthful nostalgia. It sounds weird for a you know older songwriter, but trying to capture there was these things in these in Chainsmokers records where it was mm. all about great sounding records, amazing yep. sounding records with with but with a, an emotional. Uh, core that generally was a, something like a 22 year old thinking oh wasn't it great when we were 18 and we didn't sure. have it you know yeah. and it was that was the sort yeah. of thing oh and that 
girl I should have really stayed with and you know yeah. is this and that time in Paris when we you know yes, yeah. and, it, and it really sort of I thought this is great you know this is a great ter- because turns out doesn't matter how old you yeah. are or you know how young you are there's, there's that that sort of feeling stays with you regardless yeah. whether you you know as you get older whether you're looking back the 30 years or 40 you know you just go oh yeah oh absolutely. I wonder what would have happened if yeah. so anyway you know I set off we set off on these things and and the the the, the lyrical content was trying to mine that area to some extent and I told you know I told my eldest daughter who um, is now 18 but so we go back a couple of years, maybe 16. Um, she knew I was doing this, what she viewed as this v- very, very cynically pop. We're just trying to write mm. stuff that works on the radio. That's, you know, people are going to want to listen to on the radio. and Everything's going to be like driving it towards that. But of course, part of the idea was that there'd be this emotional core to it. And I remember, you know, one night she was sort of saying, Dad, why are you doing this? You know, why are you doing this sort of, you know, just kind of trying to just do stuff just so that it gets on the radio and without the obvious uh, riposte to that would be, well, you know, it would really help pay the bills, darling, you know. But <laughs> I didn't, but, 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 but I didn't yeah. re, I didn't, I didn't say, I said, well, you know, let's, you know, I tell you what, I'll play, you know, mm. I'll play you like three or four songs that, that we've done. And she listened to it. And she said, oh, I get it now. Because actually what I'd done within those songs was kind of be quite autobiographical about, you know, not necessarily great stuff that had gone on in my life and relationships and what have you. So she who had borne witness to that could actually see within this glossy pop sort of thing there was actually essentially some truth and some yes yeah some, some poetry you know, and uh it's always the best pop isn't it some and so, yeah yeah i mean i'm rambling on from uh no, the the martin superfan stockman's uh <laughs> question question but i mean quite a lot of it does come from as when i do you know occasionally do a talks about songwriting i would uh only half jokingly say you know having had a fairly um, disruptive and chaotic sort of uh, domestic life for maybe 15, 20 years, um, that does definitely keep you connected with, mm. with a, you know, the truth part of songs and what, what, what you're digging yes. around for. Yes. And you can relate to all those big things that are yeah. the most important generally uh, outside of Nissan car factories um, mm-hmm. the things that people want to hear well yeah. generally yeah. the best songs about. don't come from the happiest people I don't think I think if everything's going particularly smoothly it's probably very hard to write a great song totally I've, I've said that before uh, we've made it to the point in the show now which is the point that everyone wants to get to it's called what people are saying about your song below the comments section in YouTube and this it's is a- lifted directly from the lifted video comments section somebody's going to Enlighten you, surprise you. 
Upset you. Upset you. Well, Enrage you. It really will not. <laughs> I've got to tell you, normally I was looking for some negative ones. It's very hard to find. Normally yeah. we look at a song and there's loads of negative <laughs> quotes. Let me just get online. I don't know what is going on. No, you should look. <laughs> Literally every comment is, maybe it's the clientele or the... Uh, I'm sufficiently secure in my own no, uh, no. self that I do not look don't uh, worry. Right. down 20-year-old songs. Okay, so this is from someone called... Joeth Awesome from four years ago. He just starts off by saying, Good, brilliant. Why isn't there music like this anymore? What's happened? And then Rohan Kapoor replies two years later, Blame the internet and computers making music. This is composed. And then mm. Rack says in response, This song was played at my sister's funeral march in 1996. I still remember every word. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it is, we discussed how you composed the song and it was composed in the traditional manner to you know yeah had a um computers involved though you did you yeah. were starting on a loop <laughs> absolutely probably yeah but uh deborah watson this is a very recent comment from three weeks ago brilliant a song to lift our spirits during this global pandemic stay safe everyone and act responsibly stay distancing please because we can get through this together god willing xx oh, almost like you wrote it with this in mind yeah Lorraine Cunneen from one year ago. I played Lighthouse Family twice at my son's funeral. Sorry, there's a lot of funerals here, but he requested high and I picked lifted. He was sad and found comfort in those songs. I miss him so much. I've got a hole in my heart. When I listen to these songs, I feel so close to my boy. Love you always and forever. I mean, that must be quite special when you, well, that's, when you hear that. Yeah. I mean, you see, we can, we... And by we, I mean I can be sort of cynical sometimes about, uh, uh, you know, what 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 we do and how mm. we create things and all the rest of it. But in, in te- you know, ultimately, why do people listen to songs or your songs or whatever? And it's it's for some sort of uh, emotional comfort, and mm. uh, and that's. It's not quite as good as the money, but it is a, a definitely a reward. Yeah. It's a fulfilling. Yeah, it's you one of the few things mean. people buy, isn't it? Music, I suppose, or consume, if you like, for their spiritual side. Whether they, well, not religious, but whether you know, there's a reason people people have an emotional response to music, and not in a different way to they would do with. You know, yeah, and in, and a mark of, a, of yeah stationery or clothing. It's quite honest. I mean, when you when you've written so 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 many songs in so many different circumstances and with you know different uh, ambitions for the mm. for that for those songs and what they're supposed to do and maybe it's a technical thing of how you see things uh, you know getting a message across and so I I feel sort of fairly immune to that a lot of the time, or certainly with my own songs because I've got mm. that, you know. But there are a couple of things, actually, sort of James Morrison ones, where I have actually, and I am I totally not, you know, people say, must be great, you know, when you're at uh, Wembley Arena, I'm thinking of in particular where mm. I went to see him play, you know, you're at Wembley Arena and there's 12,000 people there and they're all singing and it's your song and it's... And honestly, I, I mean, my definitely my ego doesn't work that way. It's not. I don't like go yes, mm. but you know, I, there's a couple of songs where he did this particular gig, and there's a song that not that many people would know, which is called "Love Is Hard," 
uh, and one that a few more people would know called uh, Pieces Don't Fit Anymore. But yeah. he played those, and I actually got emotional to my own, he, to yeah, my own right. song. I was like, oh, yeah. my God. And a combination of being actually sort of moved by that is, and also a, a little sort of going, oh, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but it, it, and, and it takes a lot to, to sure. do that, you know. Yeah, um, what a great feeling. Yeah. I think I almost saw a tear in your eye as you were telling that yeah, story. Yeah, no, but it is a really, if really... If the cameras had been here, there would have yeah. been a genuine tear yes. there. It's a great feeling to know that your music can kind of travel that far from... But that's doing it to me because it's making me remember what inspired that, you know, yeah. I can, oh, that was a real life yes. thing yeah. that related. But people, look in, people find their own meaning in, your, in any song, yeah, in a good song, and yeah. that's what this is about here, I think, so, and yeah. uh, obviously the, and the I think success of a songwriter. And that was great. Thank you ever so much. My pleasure. We're going to edit this down to three minutes. <laughs> Fifty-four minutes will be about right. I reckon that's going to be a, a challenge. But we'll that, do was, it. that was a good, that was a good chat. Right, very, it. It's Thank really you. nice to be back in the room. Back in. I the mean, room. as opposed to doing it on Zoom. Right. Yeah. Just seeing it's you just face so much, to face, Phil. Yeah. No, I mean it. No, I mean, it's, it's just nice to just kind of, to look at the person, see the reaction, and we should record it now. Are you ready to go for a take? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of another episode of Song Stripper, the first one recorded out of lockdown for many months, and what delight it was to meet Martin Brammer in person and hear his experience, wit and enthusiasm that still carries on after so many years in the industry. Thank you from Phil Thomalli and myself, Tim Jackson, and with thanks to Andrew Campbell for all the help in putting this episode together. Please don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, download and tell your friends about Songstripper. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.